Welcome to the Sensemaking in a Changing World podcast, where we explore the kind of thinking we need to navigate a positive way forward. I'm your host, Maura Gamble, permaculture educator and global ambassador, filmmaker, eco-villager, food forester, mother, practivist, and all-round lover of thinking, communicating, and acting regeneratively. For a long time, it's been clear to me that to shift trajectory to a thriving one-planet way of life, we first need to shift our thinking. The way we perceive ourselves in relation to nature, self, and community is the core. So this is true now more than ever, and even the way change is changing is changing. Unprecedented changes are happening all around us at a rapid pace. So how do we make sense of this? To know which way to turn, to know what action to focus on, so our efforts are worthwhile and nourishing and are working towards resilience, regeneration and reconnection. What better way to make sense than to join together with others in open, generative conversation? In this podcast, I'll share conversations with my friends and colleagues, people who inspire and challenge me in their ways of thinking, connecting and acting. These wonderful people are thinkers, doers, activists, scholars, writers, leaders, farmers, educators, people whose work informs permaculture and spark the imagination of of what a post-COVID, climate-resilient, socially just future could look like. Their ideas and projects help us to make sense in this changing world, to compost and digest the ideas and to nurture the fertile ground for new ideas, connections and actions. Together we'll open up conversations in the world of permaculture design, regenerative thinking, community action, earth repair, eco-literacy and much more. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. Over the last three decades of personally making sense of the multiple crises we face, I always return to the practical and positive world of permaculture with its ethics of earth care, people care and fair share. I've seen firsthand how adaptable and responsive it can be in all contexts, from urban to rural, from refugee camps to suburbs. It helps people make sense of what's happening around them and to learn accessible design tools to shape their habitat positively and to contribute to cultural and ecological regeneration. This is why I've created the Permaculture Educators Program, to help thousands of people to become permaculture teachers everywhere through an interactive online dual certificate of permaculture design and teaching. We sponsor global perma-youth programs, women's self-help groups in the global south, and teens in refugee camps. So anyway, this podcast is sponsored by the Permaculture Education Institute and our Permaculture Educators Program. If you'd like to find more about permaculture, I've created a four-part permaculture video series to explain what permaculture is and and also how you can make it your livelihood as well as your way of life. We'd love to invite you to join our wonderfully inspiring, friendly and supportive global learning community. So I welcome you to share each of these conversations and I'd also like to suggest you create a local conversation circle to explore the ideas shared in each show and discuss together how this makes sense in your local community and environment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I meet and speak with you today, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So welcome everyone to the Sense Making in a Changing World podcast. And it is my great pleasure today to welcome Dr. Nick Rose. Now, Nick is actually one of the core champions of urban agriculture in Australia. Um, He's the CEO or the executive director, I should say, of Sustain Australia. Um, I first met him when he'd recently come back from his uh, Churchill Fellowship looking at urban agriculture 
um, in, uh, where were you, in the United States, in Canada and also Argentina. And following that, he released a book called Fair Food. Now, I'm just looking for the Fair Food, Stories from a Movement Changing the World, which was published by University of Queensland. And, and Nick's then also subsequently gone on to publish a book with Dr. A- um, Andrew Gaynor called Reclaiming the Urban Commons, the Past, Present and Future of Growing Food in Australian Cities and Towns, which features um, a number of people who are actually um, joined me on this podcast before, Mariam Issa and David Holmgren. And I've got a little chapter in there too about um, North East Street City Farm and the work that we did there. Um, and as well as that too, Nick is a um, he's a lecturer at, and I, I'm not sure if I've got that right, whether you're a senior lecturer or a professor now, but anyway, you're at the William Angus College um, and you and teaching a rather extraordinary program there, a master, a bachelor and a master's in food systems. So before we get into um, some of the questions that I wanted to ask you today, particularly around your very recent um, pandemic garden survey, um, I wanted to ask you about why urban agriculture? What drew you to focus your your life work really on urban agriculture what what is it that makes you focus on this particular point uh hi Morag, and uh yeah thanks very much for the invitation it's great to be with you um today and hello to everyone who's watching or listening today that's a yeah it's a really a really good question um i guess if i think back over the time i've been uh, involved and in working in this i have always been looking for a way to, you know, be the best agent of social change that I can be. And over time, it became clear to me that uh, a really great way to do that was through food and food systems, and particularly urban food systems, given particularly in the Australian context, you know, what is it, 85, 90% of us live in urban contexts in towns and cities. You know, we're very much an urban we're very much an urban population and, you know, it's very much an urban world and going to be increasingly so. So, um, uh, yeah, I think it was, you know, years of reflection and study and practice and, you know, growing food myself and being involved in local food networks and community gardens. And it just, uh, yeah, I think it just, uh, you know, accumulated over a period of time. And then, as you mentioned, you know, going off and doing the Churchill Fellowship and, um uh, you know, being inspired by so many wonderful people that I met uh, when I was doing that travel. Um, yeah, I guess I guess kind of around that time it kind of crystallised that, uh, you know, that, that urban food systems, urban agriculture was a really, uh, you know, empowering and inspiring and, and great thing to be involved in and a, and a huge opportunity and need in Australia, I guess, as well in terms of, you know, trying to make a contribution in this country in particular um, it seemed that, yeah, that that, uh, that that was something that I had some familiarity with. I, I you know, gained familiarity with it um, through those years of, of study and and travel and practice. And and now, you know, with the roles of William Anglis and Sustain, find myself in a position to actually, um, yeah, be able to start applying some of that and hopefully make some positive contributions towards you know change. Um, in Australia, so yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a short version of it, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. So, what is what is the change that you're wanting to see in Australia? 
Well, I think the way I speak about it is we're in a time of, for me, you know, systemic crisis and challenge. And I think a lot of us, you know, are feeling that. And certainly in the permaculture movement, I think that's been understood, um, you know, fairly deep level for, for many years, you know, well well before the, you know, what's been happening this year with COVID. And if you think about the major crises that people write about and talk about and speak about, you know, be they the climate emergency or biodiversity and species loss or soil degradation or, you know, over-exploitation of water, freshwater sources, what's happening with the Murray-Darling or the public health crisis, you know, all those things, so many of them come back to the way we manage land, uh, the way we produce and process and consume food and, you know, and, and the way we dispose of it, the way we waste so much food. So I think that's, um, you know, that's the the challenge and the power of the work of food systems, I guess, that it's, it's at the, the heart of so many of these contemporary crises, but it's also... I think the pathway to a better future and for me my reflection is that and this is you know we could talk about this in a bit you know with the the survey um a lot of it comes back to a disconnection i think uh, you know particularly in urban contexts um a lot of people are not connected with um you know, with nature, with their environment, uh, with each other, with themselves. Um, and so I think all the crises that we're seeing manifest are really in lots of ways, you know, symptoms of that pretty profound disconnection mm. um, and, and and a way back to that, a way back to kind of discovering that connection is through is through food and, and gardening in particular and, and growing some of your own food and, and developing that level of, um, yeah, you know, food literacy, ecological literacy, but also connection back to, you know, the the foundations of life of, of soil and plants and and you know pollinators and um, you know compost, um, everything that's involved in it. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Nick. I think I think you touched on you know like all the things you know why I also focus on food and and care about it. And it really seems to be that food provides you with that sort of that platform or that focus to be able to reach into just about every different aspect of society from from economic aspect to the cultural, mental health, social, community, nutrition, any any kind of thread that you pick up, you can weave it through uh, our food system, look at ways that we can address that. And and I know that you also talk a lot about food sovereignty and um, just want to quickly mention what that is and how what you're working on um, describes your work in food sovereignty? Mm, sure. Uh, so I guess my thinking around food sovereignty goes back to a time when I didn't really even haven't heard that phrase or know what it meant. And and this was a, you know, picking up again on your, your original question about what drew me to this area. Um, uh, a real turning point in my life came um, when I was in my early 30s and living in Central America, lived in Guatemala and Central America for about seven years and uh, was fortunate enough to do human rights work with um, some farmer organisations and women's rights organisations, youth organisations, um, campesino peasant rights organisations. Um, and, yeah, got to understand the, the history and context and, and reality of Guatemala and um 
uh, you know, the fact that there was so such high rates of child malnutrition and, and food insecurity and economic migration. And, and as I lived there for a longer period of time, I came to understand this. Again, so much of that came back to agriculture and land. In particular, in that context, it's, it's about land and who owns it and mm. how it's used, what's grown on it. Um, and those are all issues that are central to the food sovereignty movement. Um, and as I, you know, came later to understand through, you know, through research and study and, um, and you know, going on to do a PhD about food sovereignty and meeting some of the, you know, some of the leaders of Via Campesina, um, yeah, I came to understand that, uh, uh, that, that, that those questions about, you know, land ownership and, and farmland and how it's, how it's managed and, um, you know, what kind of values, uh, you know, under, underpin that uh, are really, you know, so central to the, to the histories and the presence and the futures of, you know, whole kind of cultures and societies and communities right around the world and indeed to all our futures ultimately. Um, when you think about things such as the, you know, deforestation of the Amazon or in our context, deforestation in, you know, northern Queensland. Um, and it really is... Um, I guess food sovereignty is really about, um, you know, those questions, um, those decisions, um, how they are made according to what values and principles they're made and who makes them and who gets to participate in those debates and decisions. And it really is about, it's a, it's a struggle ultimately. It's a political struggle for the, you know, the, the heart of the national and global food systems and the future of agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, for me, it's ultimately a, 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 an existential struggle. It's a, life, a matter of life and death, quite literally, you know, now and in the future. Uh, and it really comes down to, you know, what do we value as as a people, as a country, as communities, you know? Um, do we value life? Do we value fertile soil, healthy communities, healthy people, ecosystems, um, you know, a sustainable future, um, is that what we want and prioritise or do we value, you know, um, money essentially and, and profit and, and particularly the profit of, you know, some large corporations that happen to, to dominate and make most of the decisions in, in national and global food systems. Mm. And, you know, as we know at the moment, um, it tends to be the latter, you know, our, our sort of big structures and the way we make decisions and what we prioritise is very much about, you know, um, a very short-term decision-making process that is about, um, you know, the, uh, privileging and prioritising those particular interests and, um, yeah, and devaluing life and life systems. And, and so ultimately food sovereignty is, is saying we need to, you know, we need to foreground life um, and that means participatory and inclusive um, democratic processes about making these decisions and um, and that they're guided by a set of principles. Food sovereignty speaks about, you know, seven pillars, um, the seventh of which is actually a spiritual one and talks about the sacredness of, of food, and that I think touches on questions of First Nations, um, you know, cosmologies and sovereignties and ideas of stewardship and, um, you know, that kind of relationship to land and place and country and ecosystem. And that, uh, yeah, that, that that should be, you know, the basis on which we understand our relationship and connection to, you know, to our communities and our land and our ecosystems. Mm. And, and it feels at this point in time that, you know, particularly in Australia, 
if questions of food sovereignty or even food security had not been on people's minds before, they are certainly now as a, as a result of, of the pandemic. You know, we saw the big toilet paper run, then the seedling run and the, everything to do with gardening. You know, there was you couldn't buy chickens, you couldn't buy seedlings, you couldn't buy seeds, you couldn't buy fruit trees. Everything had, had just gone. And so people were obviously at this point in time realising the importance of being food secure and the, the importance of local food. Um, and so it's an interesting point now that we actually have got to where, you know, people like yourself have been talking about food security and food sovereignty for a long time and all of a sudden it feels like it's a great big door that's been opened or a, a crack that's been wedged open and we're seeing the need for what you're talking about so much more. And the survey that you've just done had um, around pandemic gardening um, got a remarkable response and some really mm. interesting results. So maybe if you could just start us there. So um, the pandemic gardening survey, what, what is it and, and um, actually what inspired you to, to open that up? And who you've got a number of partners that you were working with that, I believe. That's right. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, so I guess the, the, the context for that is that, uh, as you say, we've been... Um, you know, I've, I've been working in urban agriculture for you know a number of years, and with Sustain, you know, we we decided to make that a, a, a focus of the organisation and a priority to really push forward the um, you know the agenda of urban agriculture in Australia. Um, so in 2016, we had a first um, urban agriculture forum at Melbourne University's Burnley campus, and then we followed that up in, with William Anglis having a, an event in 2018, um, and we'd been. Um, you know, planning and in preparation for the third one, which was going to take place in October this year, next month, um, which we'd themed care, gardening and farming in the climate emergency. And we had, you know, we'd sort of been working on that for some months and and we'd put a steering committee in place. So um, uh, we reached out to organisations like Sustainable Gardening Australia, um, Community Gardening Australia, we used to be Australian City Farms Community Gardens Network, now Community Gardens Australia, um, Collingwood Children's Farm, 3,000 Acres, Yerrabingan Indigenous Consultancy, Pocket City Farms, um, and Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Foundation. Um, I think I've got included everybody, I hope. Um, so that was like a, a steering group. And then COVID happened and we, you know, reluctantly took a decision that, you know, events are just, you know, face-to-face events, just a non-starter <laughs> this year. Um but uh, Community Gardens Australia, Naomi Lacey, who's the president, um, who was you know, part of that, that organising committee for this event and made us aware, uh, I think this was back in about April or May during the first lockdown, that some community gardens and gardeners were being told that they could no longer attend their community garden during lockdown, that this was you know, no longer a permitted activity. So... She wanted our support in seeking clarification about that and decided to, you know, to write some letters and make some representations to all the health ministers at the state and territory level and indeed the federal health minister to have community gardens in Australia be declared an essential service during the time of lockdown, um, you know, on the basis that if you can go to the supermarket and buy food, then you know, for a lot of people going to the community garden, tending your patch and and getting, you know, really fresh um, food that, you know, you've cared for and, you know, almost certainly grown without using chemicals is, um, 
is important and necessary um, for a lot of people. So that was the first thing. And then uh, so we did that and, you know, got a certain level of engagement and response to those letters. And then, you know, media reports were coming out about, you know, nurseries selling out of seeds and seedlings and, you know, rush on seedlings at Bunnings and so on. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the, the perception of people, you know, being at home, what were they doing at home? Were they doing more cooking? Were they doing more gardening? seemed that they were doing more gardening. Um, and then also, you know, discussions happening about, well, you know, all of us are now kind of isolated and we can't socialise and what impacts is that going to have on our, you know, our well-being and mental health? Uh, and what is the role of gardening and, and growing food in, amongst all of this? So that was kind of, you know, the, the thinking behind the survey really to kind of like just get a bit of a snapshot in this pretty unique circumstance that we found ourselves in um, this is early June this year. And, uh, but it was, you know, it was always kind of wanting to kind of like, you know, continue our agenda about promoting urban agriculture and raising the visibility of this sector in this space. And, and uh, you know, having just made a decision to postpone our forum until 2021, we wanted to keep up momentum and uh, continue the national conversation. So those were all the reasons why we decided to uh, to do the survey and as you say we've got an absolutely extraordinary response um, a lot of that I should say is thanks to a couple of well one organization and one individual individual being Costa uh, Georgiadis um, who yeah really embraced uh, he's been a supporter of our work you know as he has for so many different groups and people around the country for a long time as you know um, but he really embraced this survey and got really excited about it and I decided to do a couple of what he called um, edible garden odysseys where he was in his um, kitchen in, um, uh, you know, in, in a Sydney and then doing a Facebook Live um, through StreamYard, sort of going around the country, you know, just having people stand in their gardens and talk about what they were doing. Uh, so that he did that a couple of times in early July um, to help us get more responses. And then we also got the Diggers Club um, to give it a push and send out a mail out to their membership. Um, so with those two combined, plus our own networks, uh, yeah, we managed to get over 9,000 people responding to the survey in a month, which was pretty extraordinary. Wow, in a month, that's amazing. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah 9,140 people. Um, yeah, from and I can I can show you um, where they were. We got a, we did, um, well, I can just show you who they were, actually. So maybe I'll, and I can speak to this as well, you know, for those who yeah, are great. listening. Excellent. Um, so I'm showing you now my screen, I think. Um, so yep, I can see that. Presenter mode. Yep, I'm just going to presenter mode. Um, so I should say this is what we, uh, yeah, what we presented to a national audience on the 16th of September. So you've got the link to the YouTube where this is... Um, you know, we would take about an hour to go through the whole presentation. So obviously, I won't, uh, I won't do that. Um, but um, yeah, this is you know what we covered off in that in that uh, presentation. Um, so I'll, I'll go through uh, quite quickly and just uh, give you a bit of a kind of like a snapshot. So um, yeah, high level, you know, high level findings. Um, as you were saying before, Morag, um, you know, what's been interesting about this year. Is that is a kind of like a circuit breaker, a, a, a disrupting, a moment of disruption and, and rupture in in, uh, in 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 the fabric of normality. Um, 
Um, although I have seen a lot of comments which I agree with that, you know, the last thing we need to do is go back to normality or go back to normal because, you know, normal and business as usual was, you know, the problem. And, uh, we, you know, as many respondents to this survey said, uh, we need to, you know, seize this opportunity, this moment. Um, it is an opportunity for a, you know, for a reset, uh, for a reboot, um, and to, you know, to do to make some sort of like pretty profound changes in the direction of, you know, sustainability and and fairness. Um, but what people also said, um, and you see here, as we say, you know, time. Um, it was kind of like this being at home, not commuting. Um, you know, this great kind of sense of slowing down of time and, and expansion uh, that went with that. So, um, so as, you know, as we say there, over 60% of the 9,000 people who responded to this survey said they'd spent more time gardening because they had more time. And that's, you know, that's really significant. Um, I talked about mental health before, and that was a key thing that we wanted to explore in this survey. And that was a key finding from the survey where over 70% of the respondents said edible gardening either greatly or significantly improved their mental health. And that was really important, not just in terms of the impacts of COVID and, and isolation and social disconnection, but just, just generally, you know, there's been talk for some years about, you know, a epidemic or pandemic of mental health problems in, in Australia and stress and anxiety and nervousness. So, um, you know, everybody who gardens knows um, you know the the you know the the mental health benefits of, of spending time outside and and tending your plants, um, but you know to have it actually documented in this way with with you know those kind of numbers is really really That's valuable. A significant number too, isn't it? It's a very big number. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then social connection that was that's also was an important finding um, that uh, um, again is is significant in terms of. Uh, yeah, sort of policy change um, and another reason, you know, for, for governments at all levels and others to support these kinds of activities because it does bring people together, you know, even during a time like now of, of enforced um, distancing. Um, and this was a really big one for us and really, really important. Um, and this is, you know, from my interest and motivation, particularly as a Churchill Fellow and, and doing that study, as you mentioned, in the United States and and Toronto and Argentina, what I was particularly interested in, in exploring um, back in 2014 when I did that travel was the importance and relevance of urban agriculture and community gardens and, and urban farms as a contribution to food security, particularly for marginalised and vulnerable people in our communities. And that came through very strongly in this survey that people growing their own food uh, really does matter in terms of household food budgets and particularly for, um, you know, members of low-income households. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of particularly new gardeners, and that was, I guess, another reason for doing the survey was to get a bit of a snapshot about um, people taking up gardening and, as we'll see in a moment, uh, about just under, I think, about 8% of our respondents could be described as new gardeners, either taking it up since COVID or within one year, in the last year. And those people in particular said they needed um, support and what they really want is advice and mentoring and guidance, um, which, again, is significant in terms of thinking about recommendations, um, but also, you know, for people in, in the permaculture movement, it's, I guess, really great validation for, um, you know, the work that's been done over so many years with PDCs and workshops and courses and, and, and the like. Mm. Um, 
So, yeah, and then as well as the 9,000 responses, we had lots of parts of the survey where people could leave comments and people were, um, you know, very generous in their comments and we had, you know, over 25,000 comments and some of them went to 200 words long or or more. Um, So it was, you know, a a lot of work, like days (laughs) if not weeks of work pouring through all that and trying to, you know, um, analyse it. Um, and there were yeah, a number of themes that emerged from that, uh, and, you know, particularly people's thoughts and concerns about the future and, mm. and worries about, you know, this being a time of increasing division and, you know, the politics of fear and xenophobia and racism and, um, uh, you know, increasing kind of like economic and social and political division. But, but also a lot of people talk about, you know, the silver lining, linings of the pandemic and greater sort of community connectedness and, and a, a real awareness of, of what matters in life. A lot of people, you know, use that phrase that is slowing down and, and it's being a time for reflection and to think about what, what's really important, what matters and, yeah, and the, that a you lot know, the need too, for change. That, that whole, yeah, the sense of the deeper connection with local communities and the, and actually having the time to do the things that they've been wanting to do for a long time and getting mm-hmm. into community sharing in different ways that they've never done before and it's it's been interesting. Uh, it certainly has, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so this was, you know, just some feedback we got on doing the survey and, and how, you know, a lot of people really appreciated it. And I just, uh, yeah, that quote, which I'll read for the benefit of those listening, this uh, younger guy in Adelaide, which um, uh, I think is really touching. Um, and he said, I'm so glad someone is recording this awakening. I feel that gardening keeps me in touch with the basics of our existence. It reminds me that the complexities of life can sometimes just require observation and interaction. It reminds me that the graciousness of life is abundant. Mm. These are qualities learnt in a garden. Mm. I think that's that's really lovely. And, uh, yeah, so many comments were like that. We're sort of like sort of tossing up the idea of, just, um, you know, capturing some of these, you know, very kind of poetic sort of uh, comments and, and turning it into a bit of a book with uh, with pictures with their that would be a nice a project all of their own. Oh, that'd be an absolutely beautiful thing to do because obviously, you know, it's it's such a an important part of people's lives and, and as you're saying about that connection and about feeling alive and about feeling a sense of safety, security, purpose, all of those things and as a sort of an inspirational guidebook and and also valuing the role that garden gardening plays in that, I think that mm. would be such a beautiful mm. thing to do. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. So that's um, another one on the on the to do list. Um, <laughs> it would be would be a great project to do. Um, but we've got yeah, we've got so we've got. But what we've got here is a pretty amazing resource and expression of sentiments that people expressed. Um, over you know those weeks in June and July, um, uh, you know it's a real kind of snapshot into a moment in a in a pretty unique year in Australia's history, mm. um, and it's yeah there's there's yeah so many kind of like beautiful and touching sentiments that um, that that could be that could be uh, yeah could documented in that way. Um, so yeah, just quickly have a look at um, who the people were filled out the survey. And I think this this picture, which obviously your listeners won't be able to see, but those watching it um, as a video will be able to, the, you know, the hands of a, you know, looks like a grandparent um, with a little um, pot where a, a child is pulling out the strawberry um, 
sucker uh, the young the young strawberry plant to, to repot or plant. Um, you know, it goes to that sort of sentiment of of connection and passing wisdom and knowledge from one from one generation to the next. Um, and there's such a, you know, there's such a wealth of, of knowledge in um, in in the in that generation of people over 55, I think, uh, who've been doing, you know, many of whom have been doing this for 20 years plus. Um, and I think it's a huge opportunity to, to find ways for that knowledge to be passed on to, to younger generations and instill an appreciation of gardening and and you know knowledge and, and how to do it. Uh, well, it's a real opportunity. Mm. Um, so yeah, so there you see, you know, the, 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 the majority of the respondents, the survey were in fact from that older demographic. And I think that, you know, to a certain extent that reflects the diggers club membership where we got a, a huge kind of increase in, uh, respondents when the diggers uh, sent it out to their, to their 75,000 odd members. Um, uh, yeah, we did, we did get a, see a shift in the, the age range. Um, and so the, you know, the majority of the respondents, are. Are over the age of um, 55, um, just around 70% actually are over the age of 45. But there are, you know, younger, younger generations that are represented there. Um, so yeah, in terms of the um, ethnic composition, see here that it's a, a reasonably broad sort of um, reflection of the the broader kind of ethnic composition of the Australian. You know, Australia is a migrant nation, and we were pleased to see that over two percent of respondents identified as Indigenous. Australian as well, so we're able to capture um, those perspectives and voices uh, as well. Um, uh, now, this was an interesting one in terms of income, as uh, mentioned before about food security, that um, the poverty level in Australia is actually $50,000 uh, per annum for a family of four. So 25% of the respondents to this survey uh, or, or those that answered this question rather um, stated their income as being less than less than fifty thousand uh, dollars per annum, so below that poverty line. Um, and the average income, the and then the mean, and I sort of need to make a distinction here between the you know the mean, which is the kind of like the the, the raw average, if you like, take into account all kind of income in Australia. Is actually one hundred and seventeen thousand dollars per annum for a for an adult. Mm. So, um, one hundred seventeen thousand dollars, I should say, for a household. Um, and so, yeah, the the bulk of respondents to the survey were below that figure. But uh, the median average income for an Australian adult uh, is less than fifty thousand dollars a year. It's about forty nine thousand dollars a year. So. Mm. Um, so yeah, so so definitely, uh, people answering this survey were, um, uh, yeah, were were you know on the whole kind of like below average in terms of their um, income. Overwhelmingly, women uh, answered this survey. So we we're not in a position, I guess, to say that that means that it's overwhelmingly women who are the gardeners in Australia, or whether it's women who are more likely to respond to this kind of survey. Um, but I think it's worth saying, as as you know, Morag, and I'm sure many of your listeners do as well, that um, the majority of uh, you know gardeners and farmers and food producers worldwide, uh, particularly in the global south, are women, mm -hmm. um, particularly small scale producers. And it's certainly true to say that women do the you know the bulk of the work of you know feeding the world um, when we're talking about 
you know, growing food as distinct from growing sort of commodities um, yeah. that are traded. So that's an important point. Um, and this is what I wanted to show you and, and just mention in terms of the geographical coverage that you see that, um, you know, people from right around Australia answered this survey. And in fact, those dots right around the country uh, represent 62% of every postcode, of all postcodes across wow. Australia, and about 29% of the total land mass. Um, mm. So... You know, obviously, the you know the concentration of respondents uh, around the you know the major capital cities and bigger towns, as you'd expect. Um, but there was a lot of people from you know rural and regional and even remote communities that answered the survey. So, um, you know, so that was good to see, and you know, a pretty good level of response from uh, you know from pretty much every state and territory. I guess consistent, broadly consistent with the population distribution across Australia. Um, but yeah, but with with more respondents from Victoria, um, forty two percent in total compared to twenty three percent in New South Wales. Um, so I just you know just quickly I can show you um, Victoria there. Um, you can see that's pretty wide coverage, um, you know, right across the state. And if we uh, have a bit of a closer look at Melbourne, um, you can see as you'd expect that the um, the larger numbers of respondents are from those inner north uh, suburbs of Northcote and Brunswick, um, but there's you know um, people from you know most of the suburbs um, within a radius from the CBD who who answered this survey. So yeah, we really did capture you know a lot of um, you know a lot of voices. And look quickly at Queensland, um, you can see they're you know right up the coast and several kind of inland regions. Um, there were respondents and in Brisbane itself, again, north and south of the river um, and over towards Wynnum, um, there's a number of respondents. So, mm, um, so yeah, so there was, um, yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, uh, coverage. Um, um, again, we can see, and I think this reflects perhaps the Diggers uh, Club membership as well, that over 50% of respondents were people that we might think of as longer term or experienced gardeners who've been gardening for more than for more than 10 years and more than a third of them had been gardening for more than 20 years. Mm. Uh, but then you see in the upper um, left-hand sort of part of that circle, uh, the new gardeners, and I was wrong when I said before 7%, it's actually closer to 10%. Um, so uh, 341 people, brand new gardeners since COVID, and then a further 5% on top of that had been gardening for less than a year. And then another 20% who are, you know, relatively inexperienced, I guess, who'd only been gardening for one to five years. So, you know, a real range of kind of like uh, length of time that people had been uh, gardening in responding to this survey. And this is, um, it was another question. We wanted to know how productive uh, the gardeners were, what kind of yields they were getting. Uh, so you can see there uh, around 50% just under uh, reported growing a little of their own food, so less than 10%. Um, then 30, or just over a third, 37% said they grew, grew some. That was from 10 to 30% of their own food, which is still, you know, a fair amount. Um, and then a smaller number, but still significant, 14%. That's about 1,200 people uh, reported that they were growing a lot of their own food, more than 30%. Um, so, you know, got some pretty serious... Uh, serious food gardeners um, out there. And then we wanted to kind of like blend those two kind of questions together and see what the correlation was between experience and productivity. And uh, as you'd expect, um, more experienced gardeners uh, grew significantly 
more um, of their own food. Uh, so the, the new gardeners, the ones that have been doing it less than a year or since COVID, only 3% of them reported growing more than 30% of their own food compared with 18% of the uh, 10 years plus gardeners who said they were going um, more than 30% of their own food. Um, so, yeah, so here's like a, a younger um, woman from Adelaide um, saying, you know, she took it up since uh, COVID this year uh, and she said, our family realised how important it is to have the skills to grow our own food if need be. So we are learning from scratch how to do so. We feel increasingly liberated as we acquire food growing knowledge and plan on doing much more in the future. And one of the other questions we asked was, you know, whether people wanted, you know, plan to continue or expand their food growing in the future. And 98% of respondents said that they did. And um, a lot of people said they wanted to grow a lot more food into mm. the future. So That's significant, isn't it? That, well there. Yeah. 98% wanting to continue it. And and I, I liked what that woman was just saying there about, um, well, you know, learning from scratch, but that she felt liberated. Mm. I think this is a really interesting point about how, you know, there's perception before that, you know, growing food possibly was something hard to do, something that was, you know, you did only if you really had to, but people are realising this sense of liberation and freedom and, and uh, I don't know, this opportunity that it presents when you actually do get involved in that and, and how it opens up doors to so many different things. I, it's been quite a remarkable feedback that I've heard in lots of different ways too and, that, and the great sense of joy that comes from, mm. from doing it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, those were, you know, there's so many comments through this survey where people are talking about exactly those things. Um, so, uh, yeah, then we wanted to ask people what they were growing. Um, so that's how long have you been growing, how much are you growing, and this next question is what are you growing? Uh, and this is really important from a health perspective, um, and particularly people working in public health and one of the audiences that we wish to speak to in terms of the significance of this is that people growing their own food eat well, you know, particularly if they learn how to do it at a reasonable level. Um, they get access to all the things that we are told we're supposed to be eating in terms of our, you know, caring for ourselves and our bodies and our mm. nutritional health, you know, fruit and vegetables. Like 97% of respondents say they're growing vegetables, 66% fruits, um, and then tw another 28%, very large number, who are, you know, got backyard chooks and raising some of their own poultry. Mm. Um, so, yeah, in terms of the vegetables, um, leafy greens, 94% of people who were growing vegetables uh, were growing leafy greens, 89% uh, herbs, 71% legumes, 67% root crops and aromatics, and, and a further 58% fruiting vegetables. So, um, uh, you know, really um, uh, wide variety of, of different foods. Um, and you see, you know, um, stone fruits and tropical fruits and berries and vines. Um, and then not just fruit and vegetables, but a whole range of other things that people reported from edible flowers to, you know, native foods, medicinal plants, um, mushrooms, foraged food, um, uh, microgreens, nuts, edible weeds, um, and, uh, of course, bees and honey. So, you know, really wide diversity of um, projects. 66 different types of, um, of produce we counted um, going mm. through the survey. Um, um, yeah, and in terms of like, you know, what this means for people, you know, this uh, gardener from, you know, Western Sydney 
uh, says, you know, thinking about and planning my gardens has helped me greatly feel like I have more control and manage stress levels. So I've designed and created a new garden filled with only edible and medicinal plants, uh, food, herbs with multiple functions. Thinking about it helped me get through some very challenging times. And now I'm seriously planning converting my front yard into a food forest. I have more confidence in trying new things. Mm. Um, and an old lady from uh, Victoria said, we already had two beehives and we have both morning and afternoon tea watching them. Mm-hmm. Been a sanity saver. The chooks are entertaining. The bees are addictive. <laughs> Which I really like. Um, so, yeah, in terms of what this mean, meant for people during the actual pandemic, during COVID itself, um, you know, we asked people what impact the pandemic had had on them. Uh, 47% of people said it made them feel anxious and worried. Um, 25% they felt isolated and alone, 21% lost work or income. Um, but interestingly, about physical health, uh, 27% said their physical health actually improved and only 13% said their physical health got worse. Um, and then there were a lot of other comments around uh, this question. Um, when we analyse them and looking through the survey as a whole, we come back to this, uh, these mentions of time. You know, there was thousands of uh, comments and references to having more time and being happier. Like people talked a lot about feeling happier. Even people who lost work, who lost income, said they felt happier because they were less stressed, because they had more time, because they could, you know, spend more time with their partner or their kids or their family. Um, and spend more time gardening um, and, and take care of themselves more. So um, so that was a very common experience. I mean, for others, um, you know, obviously it varied enormously, the pandemic experience, according to what your circumstances were and your experience. And for some sectors, particularly higher education, and I guess, you know, people working in frontline health, uh, it has been intense and stressful and workloads have increased and pressures increased and those kinds of things. So I don't want to sort of like paint an overly rosy picture. Um, because it clearly hasn't been for, you know, quite a lot of people. Um, but, uh, you know, for many people, they experienced, um, you know, that expanded sense of time. And um, and that, you know, is important for people, you know, recovering from chronic illnesses, from serious illnesses such as cancer, you know, forced kind of period of rest and, and self-care, um, uh, you know, changing the focus of lives. This person says, my partner and I spend more time discussing things that matter more in our lives than the statistics of profit growth in our boss's pocket. We now plan on ways of improving our lifestyle, our relationships and our friendship. Mm. Um, lots of, uh, yeah, lots of comments of that uh, of that nature. So like the next one there too, saying that they're um, in the process of um, they're about to, acquire a farm so they're actually i wonder whether that's that they're shifting their action absolutely well that's exactly yeah like people kind of making some really major life decisions and life choices and you know this kind of like forced um period of reflection is really yeah and it it came through time and again people saying you know it's given us the space and time to think about what's really important for us um and yeah a lot of people have you know made some some really sort of important decisions um and a lot of people really hoped that there wouldn't just be a rush back to, you know, normal patterns and, and busyness and, and previous kind I of think patterns. That, I think that also comes from us not just rushing back, like each of us individually and in our, you know, the groups that we're involved in to really make a conscious effort not to do that. That's right. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. It's like, you know, and that's what I would say in terms of like where to next and what does this mean? It is about making conscious choices and conscious decisions and and being, yeah, being intentional about what we want the future to be because it is one of those moments where, you know, the potential and possibilities for the future have opened up in many different ways and where it goes will matter a lot about what what choices and decisions and actions we take right now. So mm. that was a, you know, it's it's been a major motivator for my work for years and, and particularly with this work as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we asked people, um, you know, interested, in, as I said before, about whether the pandemic meant that people spent more time gardening. So we, as kind of like a baseline, we wanted to ask people, you know, typically how many hours a week do you spend in the garden? Um, so you can see there that um, uh, you know we got we got 16% of people who are very keen gardeners spending more than 10 hours a week, um, and then you know another 28% spending five to 10, 47% one to five hours a week, and 9% less than one hour a week. And then we asked, um, you know, did the uh, pandemic lead to more gardening? And the answer to that was overwhelmingly uh, overwhelmingly yes. Um, so, sorry, just uh, jump forward a bit. Um, 25% said they'd significantly increase their edible food growing activity, spent a lot more time in the garden, and a further 30% said they'd somewhat increase their edible food growing activities, spent a bit more time in the garden. Only 3% said they actually had reduced their edible food growing activities during the um, during the COVID period. Um, um, so... Um, uh, um, you know, and, and and people taking the opportunity to grow a lot more food. So this gentleman from Broken Hill said, uh, we've always had a home veggie garden, but when COVID happened, we set about to treble the size of our vegetable garden. We now grow 55 varieties of veg and 32 varieties of herbs. Hmm. There are five adults in this household. We produce 80% of our vegetables and have large quantities in excess. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. It's interesting how the localization of, of the food in our gardens has increased and also of people supporting local food systems. I know Food Connect in Brisbane was saying that they're, you know, the people growing things, but then their business had um, quadrupled during COVID time too. So mm. gardening, Absolute. local food yeah. systems been interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, because people were thinking about where their food came from. Like, mm. like they were reflecting about you know, getting some control of their own food and growing some of their own food. But, you know, obviously, um, you know, most of us are not in a position to grow mo most of our own food. So we have to get it from somewhere. And and I think with uh, with supermarket shelves emptying and concerns about panic buying and concerns about exposure to the infection, um, businesses like Food Connect in Brisbane and Series Fair Food here in Melbourne and our own little business that um, we as Sustain have started through the Melbourne Food Hub, uh, the Grow Soul Seed Programme, um, all those types of businesses have expanded. Um, you know, in our case, we started that in 19th of March with nine subscribers. And then within four weeks, it was up to 100. Um, and then it kind of like fluctuated a bit. And as, you know, seemed that lockdown was coming to an end, it dipped back down to around 60, but now it's back up around uh, 100 or so. So, um, yeah, I think that's been a common experience for everybody working in in um, you know local food um, veggie box uh, type operations right around the country, um, so yeah, so this question you know how important was gardening during COVID? 
Um, you know, nearly a fifth, 19% said extremely important. I could not have made it through. Um, and by that, they, a lot of people mean psychologically, mentally, but also in some cases, as a matter of food security, could not have made it through without my garden. And a further 62% said uh, very important being able to garden during this time has meant a great deal. And only 2% saying they could, they could take it or leave it. But isn't that interesting? Um, 19%. Saying couldn't have made it without their garden. That's that's, that's right. A huge um, proportion of, of responses. It is. it is, yeah, absolutely. It absolutely, um, you know, and and this, you know, this new gardener that quote in the middle there from the western suburbs of Melbourne, um, only been gardening for a year, says, you know, it gives me hope and peace. It provides a sort of meditation or therapeutic quality which allows me to cope. It gives me purpose which I haven't had from working. Mm. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? It is, it really is. Um, and this uh, lady from the south coast of New South Wales says, uh, gardening gave me a focus. It provided hope and reinforced my personal resilience. Putting my hands in the soil each day redirected my fear and anxiety about our future. I was able to transfer it to action. Hmm. Um, you know, just just um, hundreds of comments like that uh, right throughout the uh, right throughout the survey. Um, and so, yeah, and then we kind of came to the heart of what we were wanting to explore, which is about mental health and gardening. Um, and so the question there was, to what extent have your gardening activities resulted in improved mental health and well-being? And 38% said, greatly, gardening makes me feel much more relaxed, less stressed and anxious and happier. And a further 32% said, significantly, gardening makes me feel more relaxed, less stressed and anxious and happier. Mm. Um, uh, only 3% of people said gardening makes very little difference to me uh, in terms of psychological and mental health. Um, and, uh, yeah, as this, you know, um, new gardener, again, less than a year from Geelong, she said, my mother passed away in March and watching things grow, helping them into the world has been enormously comforting. In a year where things feel like they've been put on pause, the inexorable growth of our vegetables has been a sweet and quiet lesson in motion, hmm. a sense of things carrying on. Um, and this uh, this lady from Tasmania said, it has kept me calm and focused on the future. There is a future when you garden. Mm. Very nice. Mm. Yeah, these are, you know, there's so many comments. As I come back to the idea of the book, you know, just be, uh, you know, um, the voices of gardeners around Australia during COVID. It would be a, a great project. Yeah. Um, I'm. Um, I know I've, you. I've, you need to I, go. Um, so um, thank you so much for that overview. And and I know that there's a couple of things coming up that people can follow up. So you have another webinar that's coming up um, that's that right. will describe, um, like you were saying, where to from here, which is some of the things I'm really excited to to hear about how to how we can take this knowledge and then use that to advocate. I mean, for example, here in Queensland, we've got an election coming up. You know, what are the way that we can use this kind of information to then further advocate for positive changes um, in our local and state governments? And That's right. So when is your election, Morag? Oh, it's the end of, the, end of next month. All right. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I can't... Um, and I've kind of like felt this for years and known it for years, but I can't sort of stress highly enough um, how valuable and important um, 
uh, people growing their own food is, you know, it's it's such a kind of like a simple thing, but such a powerful thing. And and maybe just like end with this, you know, last quote um, here. I've got there a lady on the right um, from the ACT who says, I have cancer. My garden keeps me alive, especially on the bad days. My greatest joy is seeing my grandchildren fossick through it, eating as they go. Mm. For me, keeping the garden going in times of stress is a way of asserting some control in my life, of establishing and maintaining some normality while the world spins out of control. Mm. Um, so, you know, from, from so many perspectives, um, uh, the simple act of growing your own food is is such a powerful um, and important thing to be doing. And um, my hope is that with this survey and and the data that that is um, coming through loud and clear from right across the country, that we can get the message through that this is a fantastic thing to be doing. That more of us should be doing it. That you know we don't need you know um, many of us who've got the you know space um, to do it. We don't need anyone's permission um, often. Um, but there is a role for state and local government to assist and help, um, particularly when we're talking about public spaces and community gardens and access to things like verges and nature strips. That's right. Um, and making that space more accessible and more available. And that's really, really important. Um, and that's that's something that, you know, um, uh, when it comes to public land, the managers of that land, uh, be they... Um, you know, water uh, utilities or, um, or, or, or or councils or, or state government um, have control over and, and can make that land available or sometimes developers, you know, um, in a private context can make that land available. Um, and also, you know, with some relatively modest funding, uh, providing the infrastructure in terms of, you know, wicking beds or soil or compost or or, you know, supporting labour, you know, to help people build those things, um, you know, that, that they can be such great uh, projects um, and ways of bringing people together uh, with such positive outcomes that it, for me it's like a no-brainer, but, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, risk aversion and fear and the part of government and, you know, worries about insurance and all these kinds of things. So, um, yeah, there's a, a really... Um, great message that um, that we want to be delivering uh, to um, you know to, to policymakers around the country on the back of these results. And so on the 9th of October, um, yeah, we've got this webinar where we will be you know going more deeply into the, into these findings and their implications, but also um, sharing some lessons from some people around the country who've, who've blazed a bit of a trail in, in those kind of areas. So one in particular, just to give you an idea, is a guy called Chris Cornish, um, who was a councillor for eight years in the city of Bayswater in Perth, which became the first council in Australia to um, give permission to all residents to grow food on their nature strips without having to go through a permitting process or a planning process. And they just said, look, just go and put wicking beds or raised garden beds or, you know, just dig up your lawn and grow food, um, you know, just as long as you take care of it. Um, you don't have to ask our permission um, and go ahead and do it. And if you want to, you know, grow food and set up a bit of a fruit orchard in your park or a little community garden in a public park um, that we've got responsibility for, you can do that as well. It's a very simple, straightforward process. 
Mm-hmm. And they met resistance um, from staff in the council and they met resistance from the insurance company, but they just pushed ahead and said, no, we, this is the right thing to do. It's a great thing to do. And we're going to, you know, deal with your objections and your concerns about risk and we're going to do it. And they have done it. So Excellent. if they can That's do it in Bayswater and Perth, it, it can be done anywhere. I know in Queensland there was the the very sad story of the um, urban food streets um, in the Sunshine Coast a few years ago. Um, so I, I know in Queensland that uh, there is that kind of risk aversion. Um, and but concern. Too, on the other hand, there's also a lot of parks that are, are now got commu- you know thriving community gardens and city farms that are throughout them too. So there's like, you know, there's there's an amazing amount of possibility that you see in all of the common spaces. And so sharing the examples like what you're saying with uh, what's happened in Bayswater over in Perth and how we can then uh, ripple that out everywhere else. Because I think I think that's the keys and it's opening up the access and the possibilities to mm. like what, you know, the title of your book, Reclaiming the Commons. That's I think right. That's where a lot of the urban agriculture can and need happen and um, just making sure that there's access to it, giving people the skills, giving people the tools, um, you know, running free workshops for community of how to get this up and running and, you know, maybe providing sets of tools to communities and seeds and, like you're saying, materials to Absolutely. actually this. Mm. That's exactly right. So that's that's part of what we're wanting to do. So, you know, the next webinar is called An Action Agenda for Edible Gardening and Urban Agriculture in Australia. So the things that you just mentioned are exactly part of that action agenda. And right. um, you know, that's what that's what we're wanting to do and and you know, have a you know program, you know, some parts of which are being done in some places and some in other places, but to bring it together and say, look, here's here's how to do it, you know, here's where it's been done, here's what you need. Here's the you know the resourcing that's required, and these are the benefits that are going to flow from it. And you know, there's no better time than now to do it. You know, um, the need has never been greater. I'll put all the links down below of um, how people can get in touch with you, um, Sustain Australia, how they can find out about that webinar, um, a link to all the material that you shared today, and also to um, Urban Agriculture uh, Forum for, that's happening next year as well great thanks thanks yeah thanks very much more i really appreciate that and uh yeah so with the urban ag forum just quickly um we're going to do for the first time an urban agriculture month it's kind of like a national kind of celebration um you know acknowledging and celebrating people like yourselves and so many others around the country have been doing this for so long um to make it visible to to you know progress this agenda for greater recognition and support and that's really an open invitation to everybody to um, yeah, to organise an event, be it a garden tour, a workshop, a, a talk, a, you know, a, a lunch, um, you know, seed swap, whatever it might be, um, you know, in that month of April next year and, and really try and make it a, kind of like a massive national event uh, to say that, you know, this is something that Australians really love and value and, and we want, you know, we want, want it to be recognised and, and appreciated and, um, and, and supported and enabled. Mm, fantastic. Well, thank you for... Thank you for sharing this today and thank you for all that you do champion urban agriculture in Australia. Um, it's absolutely what Australia needs right now. It's what the world needs is far more support for urban agriculture. I mean, it seems to be absolutely. one of the, you know, one of those key things that's going to make the difference. It's the difference that makes a difference. Exactly, exactly. And uh, likewise, Morag, um, congratulations and thank you for all the wonderful work that you do as well and it's been great to talk with you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Nick. Take care. Okay. All right. You too. Bye-bye now.
So thanks for tuning in to the Sensemaking in a Changing World podcast today. It's been a real pleasure to have your company. I invite you to subscribe and receive notification of each new weekly episode with more wonderful stories, ideas, inspiration and common sense for living and working regeneratively. And call positive permaculture thinking and design into action in this changing world. I'm including a transcript below and a link also to my four-part permaculture series, really looking at what is permaculture and how to make it your livelihood too. So join me again in the next episode where we talk with another fascinating guest. I look forward to seeing you there.